The reading today is taken from John 12, verses 9 through 26. John 12, 9 through 26. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Jenny, and thank you, musicians, for uh, leading us in worship today. Thank you, Megan, for that amazing uh, update on uh, Burnham Fellowship. That was great. Appreciate it. Um, welcome again to Holy Trinity Church. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, or to Holy Trinity on Wabash, as I uh, like to just think of the nickname. When we were walking in here one Sunday or one day before we actually uh, had had secured the space, uh, one of my colleagues said, "Sort of like the Church on Wabash, isn't that?" So I like that little phrase because when people ask you if you go to Holy, Tr where do you go to church? And you say, "I go to Holy Trinity," and then you Google that. There's like ten thousand Holy Trinities in the world, you know? There's only one Holy Trinity on Wabash. We're gonna be back here on, on Friday night for um, Good Friday at six thirty if you would like to join us then. Uh, we would welcome to have you uh, join us. Now today is Palm Sunday and just after this message uh, some of the children are gonna come in with palm branches to help us to celebrate. So that'll be fun, but you maybe if you if you didn't grow up in a religious background, uh, 
Or even if you did grow up in a religious background, you might be saying, what in the world is Palm Sunday? Which is a great question. And in the simplest, simplest description, Palm Sunday celebrates that Jesus is the true king. It's a very simple way to say it. But another way to say it is, and this is a text that appears in all four Gospels, another way to think of what Palm Sunday is is that it's the first time that the Jews realize that Jesus is the king, not just of Israel, but of the world. I'll say that again. It's the first time the Jews realize and celebrate that Jesus is the king of not just of the Jews, but of the world. Now, the problem is the same crowd that recognizes Jesus as the king crucifies Jesus as well just a few days later. But my own belief is that John includes this in the text, and the other gospel writers do, because John is arguing that Jesus is the king of the world. And he wants you to see that, these, that the people on this day actually proclaimed him as the king of the Jews. You can think of that as not just the king of the Jews, but of the, the Jews and the Greeks, the king of the living and of the dead. I'm going to unpack that for you today, the idea that he's the king of the world. And I'm going to do it through three images. There's kind of three images in the text that are very simple that I just want to place before you as sort of pictures. One is of the palm, the palm branch. Second one is of the donkey that Jesus comes riding in on. And the third one is of the seed that we read about in Jesus' words just a moment ago um, that has to fall into the ground and, and die. So those are the three images, or the, the sermon title is really The Palm, the Donkey, and the Seed. And they each convey a slightly different image. The palm branch scene is one of jubilation. The donkey scene is one of humiliation. And then the seed imagery is one of dedication, of Jesus giving himself completely over for us. Um, so I'm going to have a, just a little phrase that I uh, unpack for you for each one, but I'm going to ask you to bow with me in prayer. Father, sometimes, uh, as has already been prayed and recognized, um, feels like there's a little bit too little jubilation in our lives. A lot of us, because of COVID and because of some of the changes in our own lives feel flat and energyless, weary. And some of us, Lord, feel, as, as Megan was sharing just a moment ago, we can feel disconnected socially, but also disconnected from what you're doing in the world. And so we pray that today you'd revive us just a little bit through this text. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The question that I want to answer today is really just what does it mean that Jesus is the king according to this passage? So according to John 12, 9 through 26, what does it really mean that he is the king or what is Palm Sunday all about? And I'm going to go by these images. So the first image is that image of the palm branch and it is a picture of jubilation. You could state it this way. Uh, what, what we see in the first little section, especially in verses 12 and 13, is that God's king comes in triumph to be celebrated. You can take, if you have a text, you can keep it open. 
or if the uh, sound team wants to put them up on the screen and try to follow along, you can, but I didn't prepare them for that. But uh, so, so they probably won't do that. We'll see what happens. Look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So you can see the idea of kingship there just in verse 13. Look at that. Uh, yeah, we could clap for the sound team and the AV team. Um, it mentions the king of Israel just there at the end of verse uh, 13. And what part of the implication of what, it say, it, of what the Old Testament is saying is that there are these prophecies that are scattered throughout history and throughout the world that speak of the one who will be the king of Israel will also be, as I said earlier, the king of the world. For instance, Psalm 2 speaks of that. And so part of what's happening in this passage, the reason why Jesus, and we'll get to this later, when the Greeks come to him, that is the non-Jews come and they say, hey, sir, we would like to see Jesus, there's a flip in what's happening in the Gospel of John because Jesus says, now my hour has come because the whole world is starting to recognize who he is. So you have this idea of kingship that is woven throughout there. I'm calling this a moment of, of uh, jubilation and I, I thought a lot about the difference between celebration and jubilation, because I want to say that this is a moment of jubilation. So it is celebration. But jubilation, celebration, you can think of this as like a birthday party. There's a little bit, like there's some planning that's gone into it, okay? But jubilation is that moment when people shout with excitement or they exclaim. Mostly, this happens in our culture today in the world of sports, of course, right? So when say, in the NCAA uh, championship, there's a moment, even to think of the game last week, when Kansas won, they had been down by like 16 points, but what happens when somebody makes the game-winning shot is everybody like comes off the bleachers, and everybody starts cheering at the same time, or we're, some of you are watching the Masters right now. There's moments where like somebody drops a putt, and the crowd just erupts, in cheering, that's called jubilation. It's like this moment of exaltation and shouting. But it's also, jubilation also comes when a longing is fulfilled, okay? So think of the Cubs, hadn't won a pennant for 108 years, and when they do, there's this moment of jubilation. The longing part is especially important for this passage, because... in and Blaise Pascal has a spot where he talks in his pensées, the, the French mathematician who is a Christian, and he talks about God's prophecies being sprinkled in history and then carried by the Jews, basically like to every nation. And part of the reason why he's arguing that that happened is so that when the time came and the Messiah came, that all nations might also believe. Um, I, I'll read you the, the longer quote in just a moment. But that's what's happening here is there's a longing that has been fulfilled. This, this idea of the Messiah coming is something that they have been waiting for for a very, very long time. The, the actual context here is chapter uh, 12, verse 9. Jesus had just uh, raised Lazarus. So the, part of the reason why the crowd was around Jesus is because they heard that this man 
had spoken to a grave, spoken to a tomb, and said, Lazarus, come out, and he had come out. So it it speaks there of the large crowd. I'll just read that. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Jesus had raised Lazarus. The religious leaders in verse 10 are realizing they're losing some of their power. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And then we get to this little section here that we're looking at, verses 12 to 13, where the crowd is now gathered together for the Passover, and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, it's interesting because the word Hosanna means, oh, save us, or please save us. That's technically, if you're the translator from the Hebrew, that's what it means is, oh, save us. So in one sense, the Jews here are crying out, save us, but... um, It's not exactly the way it's being used here. It's being used a little bit more as a declaration of triumph that the Messiah had come. So in one sense, they are saying, oh, Messiah, please save us. But even as you read it, you can sense that it doesn't quite feel like that. What it really feels like is this shout of jubilation because they're recognizing that the Messiah has come. Um, spoiler alert, there's a place in uh, Frank Herbert's movie, The Dune, where uh, some of the people see Timothy Chalamet's character for the first time. And the people, there's this big crowd, and there, there's a, a little murmur at first in the crowd where one of them shouts out the name Lisan Al-Gaib, which is the Fremen term for an off-world prophet or messiah the voice from the outer world or giver of water. And as, as Shalemate continues to walk, as it's like his first moment on Dune, there's this sort of blowing sand. His mother's with him, and her, her, her long clothing is kind of blowing in the wind. And you hear this little whisper at first, Lisan al-Gaib, which is actually Arabic for the hidden tongue. And then it picks up steam a little bit, Lisan al-Gaib. And it's as if the crowd then begins to act as one. And in the moment of jubilation, that's what happens. His, it's like the individual identities fall away. And the crowd then kind of takes on this oneness. But I, I use that as an illustration partially because uh, Frank Herbert, and the way that he weaves messianic imagery through his trilogy or his novels is very akin to what happens in the Old Testament. I said I'd read this from Pensees. Here's a... Blaise Pascal. He says, the prophecies are the strongest proof of Jesus Christ. It is for them also that God made most provision. For the event which has fulfilled them is a miracle existing since the birth of the church to the end. Here's the part I want you to hear. So God has raised up prophets during 1,600 years and 400 years afterwards, and he scattered all of these prophecies among the Jews who carried them into the parts of the world. And such was the preparation for the birth of Jesus and his gospel as it was to be believed by all the world. It was not only necessary that there should be prophecies to make it believed, but that these prophecies should exist throughout the whole world in order to make it embraced by the whole world. And part of what's happening in this passage is some of these prophecies are being recognized and they realize this is the king of the Jews. It's a shout of jubilation over their salvation. 
For the Jewish people, they're held under the pressure of Roman occupation. They're a defenseless people. So there is a sense in which what they believed at this moment as the Romans are crushing them is that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to be victorious over all of their enemies. And you might say, you know what? I'm good. I don't really need a king. Most of the Enlightenment, most of our North American culture shapes us not to need a king. I mean, we are Americans. We threw off the monarchy in the American Revolution, right? Who needs a king? Or Darwin has told us, taught us that our lives really are made of chance. Why would you need a king? Freud tells us that, that um, God is just a, a wish dream. It's really all, all he is. But the Bible claims that something will be king in our lives. One way to think of it is um, you don't really get to choose whether you'll have something that's ultimate in your life, but you can choose what is ultimate in your life. Something's going to be at the top. And the, the concept of the, the messianic promise is that what should be at the top is someone who's pure and spotless and divine and holy and good, someone who can conquer death and sin and conquer the grave. There's only one who is worthy to be king. So celebration or jubilation is the first idea here, that the palm branches which are being laid down are a sign. They're actually a Davidic sign because they would do this for the Davidic kings as well. They're a sign that a king has come, and then you got these shouts of, of jubilation. So that's the palm branch. Not only does the king come in triumph to be celebrated, but here's what the donkey shows us, is that the king comes in humility to be marveled at. So you've got jubilation and triumph, but you've also got humility, jubilation and humiliation. And my claim here is that, um, that God comes in humility really because of his dignity, because it's who he is as a God. He could have come conquering. All of us, every time we pick up the newspaper these days, are mournful because of what's happening in Ukraine as we watch Putin continue to take more ground or to be pushed out. But... I almost feel like we're like, there's nothing we can do as a country. Like, how do you stop what is happening as he marches in in power? But Jesus, when he comes, tells Peter to put away his sword. In other words, he comes in humility. Look at verses 14 to 15. Come on, you're with me, right? And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it just as it is written. So, this is a really interesting verse, and it's kind of a pivotal verse in this text. Verse 14, the first part tells you what Jesus did, and the second part tells you why he did it, which is because it was written. Right? So you see that? It says Jesus found a donkey, sat on it, just as it is written. And again, what, what God has done, there's a lot of bakers in my house, and uh, my wife made so many things this week for a number of events, but... At one point, I was watching her make some scones, and she had this sort of big lump of dough, and she was kneading in these chocolate chips, and I was just watching it. Why am I telling you this? I'm not really sure. But this is kind of what God had done in history with the Jews. 
He took all of these promises and he kneaded them into history and spread it out all over the world. And one of those promises that he dropped in like a chocolate chip was this, this, this little gem in Zechariah 9.9, which is found in verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Here's the sign that you'll know that the Messiah has come into the world. When he comes riding on a donkey's colt. So the way we think of it and the way the Jews were thinking of it is when the king would come, he would come in on a triumphant war horse. Or in our imagery, with battle tanks. And here the imagery is of somebody who is humble. Why does he drop this in? And I want to I just make this point to you that at the core of the universe is a God who is humble. At the core of the universe is a God who is humble. Usually we think of God as being mighty, powerful, holy. Some of you feel like, God, you're so far off, I can't know you. You're, you're too extreme, you're too... And what God is doing in this prophecy is confirming that Jesus is a king, but he's also reversing expectations about how that king will come, what kind of king he'll be. We've been so shaped by our world of pride that we don't realize that God himself in this passage is, is humble. How could God be humble, the Son of God? Been so shaped by the world of power that we forget that he comes for the margins. We've been so accustomed to seizing whatever we can get, and suddenly we see that God comes not with an army, not with hostility, but with humility. It's interesting also, one of the things I like about this passage is the Jews didn't ask for Jesus to do this. They didn't demand it. He just came riding in. (laughs) And there's a way in which this is a great picture of how the gospel really works, which is in, in religion, the idea is that we go and seek God But in the gospel, God comes and seeks us. He just comes riding into Jerusalem at this day. Um, I just want to stay on this for a moment and say, some of you in the room may have rejected God because he seems remote or have wandered from God because he seems hard to understand. But I just want you to understand this one idea today, which is his humility which I think shows his total dignity. Like, you couldn't design a God who is like this. The palm branches say he's a king, but the donkey says that he's humble. So do we want to sing with jubilation? Yep, in a few minutes we will again. Want to sing with celebration? Yes. But we should also marvel at that God is a God of humility. I would even think of just like the, the small gifts that God gives to you, like sunshine or green grass or food on your table. Are, like, did God really have to do that? No, it's just his generosity and his humility. He has provided food for the world. The, the disciples didn't really get this. Verse 16 says, his disciples un- did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. Which is, again, this is part of what Pascal is saying, is that the confirmation of these prophecies is what makes 
the arrival of Jesus so stunning that these are woven into history. Jesus is predicted, but in a way he's unexpected because they thought he was going to come in this other way. So embrace the king who comes in triumph, but also, but also marvel. This week, someone in my community group is like, it's holy week. Spend as much time as you can worshiping God, marveling at who he is. Embrace the king who comes in triumph and embrace the king who comes in humility, but also embrace the king who comes dying. This is linked to the, the previous concept of humility, but it's how it is fleshed out. Jubilation, humiliation, and then dedication. He gives himself all the way to the point of death. He comes in order to serve you. How do you know that this king is for you? Because the royal one gave his life to die for you. We sang it a couple we sang about it just a moment ago in a couple of different ways, singing about here's the one who conquers the grave. That's what this next little section is saying. Take a look. Uh, this is, here's point number three. Is Point one is the palm, God's king, comes in triumph to be celebrated. The donkey, God's king, comes in humility to be marveled at. And the seed, the idea is that God's king comes in death in order to be seen and serve, or you could say to be to serve and be served. So lesson one is this, I'm calling it jubilation because of salvation. Lesson two, humility because of dignity. You could summarize the last one this way, death brings life. That's what he's saying. He's saying, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. That the way of the Christian life is the way of dying and then rising. Think of it differently. There is no solution to death. Go to any doctor. Go to Northwestern. Go to UIC. Go to, go to um, any hospital. And ask for the solution to death. There is none. Except when the Messiah comes, part of the reason why he comes in jubilation and humiliation in dedicating his life to death is to defeat death. To say there's one problem in the world that only one person can solve, and it is the king of kings. It is the Messiah who came into the world. Let's look at verses 20 to 23. For a long time in the book of John, uh, Jesus has been saying, you know what, not, this is not my time. You've been to a restaurant before and the maitre d' tells you you got to wait 20 minutes, and there's 25 minutes, and there's 30 minutes, like they're not your time, not your time, not your time. In the book of John, Jesus keeps saying, it's not my time. It's not my time yet. In chapter 2, his mom tells him to do, the, do this miracle of turning the water into wine. And um, he tells her, hey, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now, in this passage, all of a sudden, he says, my hour has come. What's, what flips it? It's that not only do the Jews declare that he's the king, but also the Greeks or the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, recognize him and want to come to him, which is a fulfillment of the messianic promises that the one who's the king of Israel is going to be the king of the whole world. That's what Palm Sunday is about, waving the palms because the one who's the ruler of the living and the dead, the Greeks and the Jews, the, the ruler of the urbanites and the ruralites. I don't know if that's a word, but let's just say it is. 
Now those, this is verse 20, now those who went up to, be, to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so these came to Philip, one of the disciples who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. There are some pulpits uh, globally that have that little phrase uh, in, in, engraved to remind the pre- on the pulpit to remind the preacher we want to see Jesus. Which is what we want you to do, see him. Philip, told, Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John is saying that the King of Kings is the King of the world. And now his time has come. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Mashiach, his anointed one, his Messiah. This is something, a promise that was woven into, kneaded into history. Not just the prophets, not just the law, not just wisdom literature. He who sits in heaven laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. And he says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. When the Gentiles want to see Jesus, that, that's the sign that the time has come for Jesus to do what he came to do. And the point here is, if, if the donkey points to humility, the seed points to the way he's going to emphasize his or execute his humility is by dying look at verse 24 truly truly i say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone but if it dies it bears much fruit i love the word alone here the idea is that jesus before his death on this sunday of holy week he knows that if he if he does not give his life, that he'll, in a sense, remain alone. But if he gives his life, the fruit of his death and his resurrection will be a worldwide chain of people who know him and worship him and love him from the moment he died and rose all the way to the present day. And this tiny little congregation in the middle of the city, in the middle of the loop, is one of those little expressions of the fruit of Jesus' death. Millions upon millions of people have come to know him. He's creating a family. It's strange, though. He goes on, and he says, whoever loses his life, sorry, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There's a way in which we can say, no, I don't, wanna, I don't want to follow in the way of Jesus in giving up my life. I called it dedication. But there's a way in which Jesus says, I have come to serve, and the way that he serves is by becoming a servant of all, and then he says, if you want to follow me, also serve. You know, there's like, 50,000 university students within a mile of where we are right now. Students from School of the Art Institute of Chicago, DePaul, Harold Washington, Roosevelt, UIC. What am I missing? Shout it out. Joel, come on. Columbus, thank you. Columbia. There's many, many students who have not yet 
had the jubilation of seeing that Jesus is the king, that he's the king who comes riding in in humiliation. In other words, what Jesus calls us to is to, to lose our lives by serving. To say, let me just get, let me follow that king. And if you try to hold on to your life, he's saying, you will lose it. It's, it's the irony of the gospel. It's the reversal of the gospel. We want to avoid dying so much, but the people who are the best in battle are the ones who don't care if they die. <laughs> they just say, I'll give my life in this battle. And there's... There's a way in which the first lesson of Christianity is dying. <laughs> That's what he did. Jesus is saying to find your life, you have to be willing to give up your life. And that is what he did. That is what we're going to celebrate on Friday. That was the whole plan. The plan from the moment that he was born into the world was to kill death. God says this humble one is the dying one, that life begins with death, where death gives birth to new, new life. I'm just going to apply this to our lives for a couple of moments. Okay, maybe you're on jubilation, maybe you're a medical professional here, or a student, or a mother, and you're tired of the slog. And John's calling you to jubilation this day. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Maybe you were raised an atheist and you've never said, oh, save, because you never believed there was a God to save. But you need to say it today. Or maybe you moved to this big city so you could find your identity, find yourself, but you've never really encountered the king. And maybe that's what you came to this city for. Maybe you found that the joy has gone right out of your life, that COVID stole something from you. We sing and we worship every Sunday to, to welcome the king into our lives. What happens when we worship is that the idolatries of our lives, the other kings, get deposed. They get broken apart because there's only one good king in the world. Um, if the king has come, you don't have to be so tight and so reserved, okay? Triumph has come into the world. Let me think of it this way. What's your jubilation index? like your natural jubilation index on a scale of 1 to 10. Like, I'm guessing you're a 3, okay? So just try to push it to a 4. <laughs> like, if the kings come into the world, lay down some of your problems at his feet. Raise your hand one time. Just, you don't, like, just up above your waist like this, okay, as we say, I'm teasing. But some of us are innately dispositionally more reserved or more pessimistic. But I love the freedom of these people. They're just like... Hosanna! Shouting with jubilation. Second point of application after jubilation is humility. Rediscover how humility is written into the universe. Let the universe preach to you. Like, God, why would you give me sunshine on this day? Why would you turn on Buckingham Fountain to announce that spring is here? Jubilation, humility, and openness. I just want to challenge you to let the king ride into your life again. <laughs> that idea, like you didn't invite him. This came riding into Jerusalem. Say, yeah, let me lay down my coat. Let me lay down my palm before you. Ride in again and say to him, oh, save. And then lastly, I'll just say dedication. 
What's a tiny little way that you can serve someone this week? To say, I'm going to invert this idea. I'm going to believe this idea that my dying is part of God's plan to raise new life. Offer your life back to God and do some things that don't really make sense. Jubilation, humiliation, and dedication. The palm, the donkey, and the seed. The, the, the Palm Sunday is the first realization and first celebration that Jesus is the king of the whole world. And you found out the secret. You get to hear that. So let's celebrate with jubilation, but let's marvel at his humility. Probably none of us would have done that. Get on a donkey, and let's celebrate that it's his death that brings us life. Palm Sunday celebrates Jesus as king and what a king he is. Let's bow our heads in prayer. God, you see our, some of the tiredness in our, in our community here, some of those who want to take our jubilation index up one or two points. We have trauma. We have hurts. Some of us have grudges. Break those things. Crucify those things. Bury them in the ground. And then raise us up to this servant-like life of humility. We thank you, Hosanna, that you came to save. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.